It's great uh, to have some guests with us today. Uh, William and uh, Haley arrived on uh, Friday night from the United States of America. And uh, William is, uh, you've got an appointment tomorrow at Cambridge University. Uh, but um, William isn't really a, uh, an academic speaker at the university. He's actually a, a red-hot revivalist preacher. We are excited to be with you and excited to be in the presence of the Lord. And so as I've been praying over this church, and that would go for our many people who are listening by the internet as well, as I've been praying, I really believe that God wants to give us as individuals and give us as a church a resurrection blessing. Now, when we think of a resurrection blessing, of course we think of Jesus, but one person we might also think of is Mary Magdalene. Because she was the very first person to see the resurrected Lord. You know, that is really quite an honor, if you think about it, to be the very first person to see the resurrected Lord. If I had lived in biblical times, and if I had been the first to see the resurrected Lord, I would not only have goosebumps all over my body, I would be a goosebump. I mean, what an honor to be the very first person to see the resurrected Lord. And we might ask, why? Why Mary Magdalene? Why was she the very first person to see the resurrected Lord? Of course, it was all about God's grace. That's for sure. But there are also certain steps that she took to help ensure that she would be the very first person to see the resurrected Lord. And we need to follow her example. Because as we take those steps as well, we'll receive a resurrection blessing as well. You believe that this morning? Now let's turn together to the book of John, the book of John, and our text this morning is going to be out of John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and the title of this morning's message is Receiving a Resurrection Blessing from the Lord, Receiving a Resurrection Blessing from the Lord, and we are going to begin reading in John chapter 20 and verse 1. And here we see how Mary Magdalene becomes the first to see the resurrected Lord. John 20, beginning in verse 1, and it reads this way. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and licked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this She turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Woman, he said, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? 
thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned towards him and cried out in Arabic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet returned to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Now again, what an honor to be the very first person to see the resurrected Lord. And again, all about God's grace, but certain steps that Mary took that helped ensure that this would be made a reality. First step she took that we need to learn from is she acted when it was early, when it was still dark. And we see this in the very first verse. Notice in verse 1 it says, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb. Now this is significant because, let's face it, there are trials in life and then there are trials. And this was of the second variety. One of the greatest trials, probably the greatest trial that anyone could ever face, was to see the Lord Jesus Christ nailed to the cross And even though he had promised the resurrection, even though he had instructed, gave instructions regarding the resurrection, a lot of those who loved Jesus, a lot of his disciples concluded, well, if surely there was a day when God's plan started, that was the day of creation, this was the day when God's plan seems to have come to an end. He has been nailed to the cross, and you know what? God's plan is over. We feel like sleeping in today. You know, when you're going through heavy trials, let's face it, a lot of times you don't feel like getting up in the morning. You hear the alarm go off and you think, oh boy, I know what faces me today and I don't want to face it. You know what? I think I'll sleep in today. Of all the days when you least feel like acting when it's early, when it's dark, it's when you're going through a heavy trial. But notice what Mary Magdalene did. Even though she loved Jesus just as much as anyone else, she got up when it was early, when it was still dark, when she least felt like it. And she went out to the tomb. We need to be that way. We need to act when it is early, when it is dark. You know, a lot of times, pastor might even come to us. And by the way, pastor did not ask me to say this. So if he convicts you, that's the Holy Spirit, okay? Not pastor. But pastor might come up to you and he might say, you know, how would you like to get involved in this ministry or that? How would you like to help out with the kids? Or how would you like to help out in reaching out to the community or so forth? And it's, it's very easy to say, well, pastor, that's really fine and I'll pray about it, but wait until my family situation gets better. Or wait until my financial situation gets better. In other words, we're basically saying, pastor, wait until there's more light in my life when it isn't so dark. But no, the time to act is when it's early. The time to act is when it's dark. When we least feel like it, that is the time to take action. Now, many times across the UK, now, of course, the UK is a highly urbanized country, but uh, you also have a lot of farms and a lot of agriculture, strong agricultural industry here. And who are some of the people to get up earliest in the morning every day in the UK? It's the farmers. When many of us are still asleep, the farmers get up and they... plant the seed and so forth. And when, it's interesting to note when it is during the course of the season that they plant the seeds. It's not during harvest. 
You know, that's, I'm sure, when they feel like planting the seeds. They see the wheat come in and so forth, or the corn, or whatever the case may be, and they might say, wow, look at this. Look at all that wheat that I planted. This really works. I feel like planting some more seed. Now, that may be the time that they feel like planting the seed, but that is not the best time to plant the seed. The best time to plant the seed is not when the harvest is coming in. It's when it's early in the season. When the ground is still resistant, when it's, it's dark till, uh, you know, well into the morning and the, the ground is resistant, when it is dark, when it is early in the morning, that is the best time to plant the seed early in the morning and early in the season when, it's, when they're wondering, does this really work? That is the best time to plant the seed. And the same is true spiritually. The best time to plant the seed is not when everything is going well. When everything is going right, when we think, wow, God's promises really work, the best time to plant the seed is now. And these may not be easy times for us. These, certainly for the world and certainly for most everyone on this planet, these are not easy economic times for sure. We don't feel like planting the seed, but this is the time to plant the seed. It may not be the best time in our family. It may not be the best time regarding certainty or uncertainty regarding our future, but this is the best time to plant the seed. The time to get involved in reaching this community, the time to get involved in the church, the time to get involved, yes, even in the barbecue. (laughs) The best time to get involved is now. Amen? Now, I think of another illustration to communicate this principle, and I think back to 1969. Now, some of us may not have been alive in 1969. Others... uh, Uh, were alive in 1969. By the way, I am not going to point out which group is which, okay? Uh, But in any case, if you go back to 1969, that is when uh, human beings were first put on the moon. Apollo 11 went to the moon, and that is when human beings first landed on the moon. Very interesting thing about the moon, it's, of course, in many ways very different from the Earth. And one of the ways in which it is different from the Earth is you ever notice when it's a full moon, you look up at the moon, and it looks pretty much the same. I mean, you can pretty much predict where the large craters are, where the brownish area is, and so forth. And the reason why that is so is because the moon is unlike the earth and that the, the earth is constantly spinning around so that a different part of the earth is constantly facing the sun. Right now, we are facing the sun, and, but there are other areas of the world, halfway around the world, that, that are not. And where, where I'm from, it's, it's still dark, okay? We're about eight hours difference and so forth, at least during daylight savings time in the U.S. And uh, we're, we're eight hours earlier, and so uh, where I live, it's, it's still darkness. But, you know, in another 12 hours, uh, it'll, it'll, be a different, it'll be a different story and so forth. So a different part of the earth is constantly facing the sun. But the same side of the moon is constantly facing the earth, meaning there is a light side of the moon, what they call, which you can see with a telescope, but then there's the dark side of the moon, and the only way you can see the dark side of the moon is to send up a spaceship and to take pictures or to land on the dark side of the moon because that dark side of the moon is always facing away from the earth. Now, the interesting thing is that when Apollo 11 was sent up, they wanted to land, of course, on the light side of the moon. They wanted to land at a place called the Sea of Tranquility, which, of course, obviously isn't a sea, but that's what it's called. And the interesting thing is that as the uh, 
the lunar module was sent up towards the moon. As it was orbiting the moon, there were three people who were orbiting the moon, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Michael Collins. And Michael Collins continued to orbit the moon, and as they were orbiting the moon, they were going uh, uh, about, uh, let me see, I don't, I'll, I'll define it both ways, because I've noticed a, a funny thing about people in the UK, you go by both miles and meters, okay? I've noticed that, and, um, but in any case, uh, it, it's about, uh, they were going about 2,000 uh, miles an hour, or roughly about uh, 3,300 kilometers per hour. You know, that's about the speed that they were going around around the moon. And um, that being the case, if they were to wait until they were directly above the Sea of Tranquility and then release the lunar lander that would actually land on the moon with Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, you know, if they did it directly over the Sea of Tranquility, they would have missed the Sea of Tranquility by a long shot. Why? Because the lunar module was going about 3,300 kilometers per hour. It's much like if you ever jump out of your car. No, I don't recommend it. I, I, don't, I don't want you to say we had this crazy preacher from the United States who said we need to jump out of our cars. That is not what I'm saying. I'm just using it as an illustration, okay? But if you were to jump out of your car, let's just say you were going about uh, 100 kilometers an hour or so, and you were to uh, jump out of your car and say, I want to land right here, you would miss it. Why? Because initially when you jumped out of your car, you also would be going about 100 kilometers an hour. So in order to land on the Sea of Tranquility, they had to make preparations. They had to put on their spacesuits. They had to prepare to release the lunar lander well before they were over the Sea of Tranquility. Now, the interesting thing is, when did Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin begin to put on their spacesuits? It's while they were orbiting on the dark side of the moon. In other words, they prepared to land on the light side of the moon by beginning to prepare while they were orbiting on the dark side of the moon. We need to be that way. If we want God's best, if we want to dwell in his light and experience the light of his promises, we need to begin preparations many times when we least feel like it. When it is early, when it is dark, and praise God if we do that, I believe that we as individuals and we as a church will experience God's resurrection blessing. Amen? Amen. Praise God. Second step that Mary took, and the second principle we need to apply, and that is when godly opportunity arises, we need to run for it. Now notice what happens in this passage of Scripture. Mary goes to the tomb, sees that the stone has been removed. So then in verse 2 it says, So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved. Now, almost every commentator is agreed that this other disciple, the one Jesus loved, is John referring to himself. So this is John. So then in verse 3 it says, So Peter and John started for the tomb. Both were running. So by this time, we have three people running. Mary is running. Peter is running. John is running. Now here's a Bible trivia question. Got to have a Bible trivia question. Who was a faster runner, Peter or John? John! Now, we don't just go by one Bible verse. You always look for confirmation. So look at verse 3. 
And we know that this is the inspired word of God, but John also wanted to make a point. (laughs) Verse 3 says, So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. Now, we don't want to just go by one verse. So bounce down to verse 6. It says, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him? And then in verse 8, Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first. You see, John wanted to make it plain, and so he mentioned it three times that John was a faster runner than Peter, so we know that for all time. But they saw this golden opportunity, and literally, they ran for it. We need to be that way. You know, sometimes God gives us an opportunity, and we either take action then, or we can miss it. Many times that happens even if we're trying to make a bus. You know, they make the last call, boarding, and if we don't take that seriously, we can miss the bus very easily. I remember when I was uh, in elementary school. Now, even though we live in California now, I was actually raised in New York. I was raised in New York City and surrounding area. And I remember every year they had an award in my class for the class's best athlete. And every year, the same girl would win. Her name was Sharon, and the reason why she won was because she was the fastest female in the class. And I remember one day as she received her award, I was sitting, and right next to me was another girl whose name was Lenore. And Lenore was mumbling as Sharon received the award, and she said, I don't know why Sharon receives the award every year. I'm a faster runner than she is. Now, the interesting thing is this was near the end of the school year, And yet, right after this this award was given, maybe a week or two after, at the very end of the school year, we went out as a class and we played tag. Now, I'm sure you play tag around here. Now, I didn't see anyone playing in the parking lot or, although maybe we can play during the barbecue or maybe even, you know, after church or whatever, but you probably all know how to play tag. If you don't want to be it, you know, you run to base and uh, if if you are it, then you run after the slowpoke. Okay. Now, that is not what happened in this instance, however, because as we played tag, Lenore saw a golden opportunity. The teacher was there who had given the award. The whole class was there. She realized she had this one golden opportunity to prove to the entire class that she was a faster runner than Sharon, and literally she decided she was going to run for it. And so as all the rest of us ran to base, Lenore stood like stone like this and put out her hand. She wanted to be it. And so she was tagged, and guess who she ran after? She didn't go after the slowpoke. Oh, no. She saw her one golden opportunity to prove to everyone that she was a faster runner than Sharon. And so she took out after Sharon, and she caught her. And to everyone's surprise, she caught her quite easily. And then Sharon, totally embarrassed, turned around and tried to chase after Lenore, but she could not catch Lenore. And everyone knew from that time forward that Lenore was a faster runner than Sharon. She took her golden opportunity, and literally, she ran for it. We need to be that way. Because a lot of times, God gives us an opportunity, and either we take action then... Or we miss the opportunity. I remember one time we were preaching outside of Chicago. We were preaching a a revival about, I think it was about seven services at a church. 
And the pastor, lovely family. They love the Lord. And also, like the rest of us, they love to eat. And so we were gathered around the pastor's table, and pastor knew that I loved corn, and uh, which is probably more popular, I think, in the United States than it is here, although I notice it's catching on a little bit here more than when I was last here. And... Um, but he knows I love corn, and so after I had my first helping of corn, he sent the corn around, and he said, Bill, would you like a second helping of corn? And I said, no, no, that's okay. You know, I'm pretty full. I'll, I'll maybe have a midnight snack, you know, just before I go to bed or something. And I'll never forget what Pastor said. He said, Brother Bill, I don't think you understand. You see, in our family, we love the Lord, but we also love to eat. This is your one opportunity to have this corn because I guarantee you if you try to have it before you go to bed it's going to be gone so I said to him that's okay I'll take my chances so after the service ended we went back home and I said to Haley I said you know what I think I'm going to have that corn and I opened the refrigerator and guess what it was gone I had missed my one golden opportunity to have that corn but life works that way sometimes Many times God gives us that one opportunity and we need to take that opportunity. Now, it's really interesting if you think about it because if you ever examine the way Jesus ministered to people, especially the way he healed people, it's very intriguing. I mean, he could have if he had wanted to. He could have just, you know, entered Capernaum or Galilee or whatever, uh, Jerusalem, and just said, okay, I proclaim everyone in this area healed. He could have done it that way if he had wanted to. Just as our dear brother said, you know, if, if he wants to, I mean, he could knock down the door of our hearts. But God is a gentleman, and he knocks at the door of our hearts. So he didn't do it that way. He didn't say, okay, everyone in Galilee is healed. He didn't work that way. In fact, you get a real sense that the people he blessed the most and many times healed first were the people who came running. You ever notice that? For example, the lady who came after the Lord saying, Son of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. Or the other lady who who made her way through the crowd so she could touch the hem of his garment. It even got to a place some people even went down through a roof to get to Jesus. Or they sat up in a tree to see Jesus. Many times, these were the people that the Lord ministered to or healed the most. And we might ask why. Why did the Lord choose to do it that way? And I believe one of the primary reasons the Lord chose to do it that way and still chooses to do it that way is that when we run after the Lord, when we say, Lord, I want you, it shows desire. When we run, it shows that we really want Jesus. We want to touch the hem of his garment. We want to enter into his presence. We want him to reach out his hand and touch us. And we want to see his face. And praise God, when God sees that kind of desire, he will respond and he will bless us and he will grant us that resurrection blessing that we seek. And so praise God, step two is when godly opportunity arises, we need to run for it. Amen? Third principle is when godly opportunity arises, we need to be persistent. Now notice what happens in this passage of Scripture. Because in verse 10, that is a real turning point. 
In verse 10 it says, Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Now that's very interesting. The disciples, John and Peter at this point, decided to go home. Mary, in her persistence, she remained at the tomb. Now think about that. If John and Peter had just stayed a little while longer, they would have shared with Mary the blessing of being the first to see the resurrected Lord. But because they went home and Mary stayed, it was Mary, not John and Peter, but Mary who was the first to see the resurrected Lord. If only they had stayed a little while longer. We need to be persistent. Now, it's interesting because it doesn't merely say that Mary stayed. It says that she was crying, meaning persistence is not easy. It's not easy to hang in there. It's so much easier to say, you know what, I'm going home. Persistence is not easy, but we need to be persistent. Now, I'm a sports fan. How many are sports fans? Okay. I'm a sports fan, and uh, one of the sports I like is uh, baseball. Now, I know probably a lot of you, you know, you like football, what we call soccer, but, you know, microphones are, you know, yeah, I don't know, cricket, I suppose you need a bigger microphone for cricket, but, you know, this is, this is just right, you know, for, for, for a baseball illustration. I, I love baseball. And uh, being from New York, I like the Yankees, but the illustration that I'm about to give is not about the Yankees. But it goes back to 1967, when I was uh, young, uh, younger, far before the time when my birth, my, how my years of age rhymed with nifty. And the year was 1967, and uh, the arrangement of baseball teams back then was very different than it is today. They had 10 teams in the National League, 10 teams in the American League, and then they, whoever, the top two teams went to the World Series, and it was the closest American League pennant race in, base, in American baseball history. Four teams, the Boston Red Sox, Chicago White Sox, Detroit Tigers, and I think the last was the Minnesota Twins. Very, very close. In fact, it was so close that the main sports magazine in America, which is Sports Illustrated, I got it at that time when I was young, and it showed how on one day, one of those four teams was in first place in the morning, then by one o'clock in the afternoon, another one of those teams was in first place, by four o'clock in the afternoon, another one of those teams was in first place, and at the end of the day, another one of those teams was in first place. That's how close the baseball race was. And I remember watching, the Red Sox actually eventually won, won the American League pennant, but I remember watching a game between two of those teams, the Detroit Tigers and the Chicago White Sox, and I was watching it on TV, and uh, the White Sox, it was in Detroit, and the White Sox were winning 8 to nothing, going into the very end of the game. We call it the bottom of the ninth, which is, may not mean much to you, but it means the end of the game. It was so close to the end of the game, the announcers were already signing off. They were already saying, executive producer, you know, and this is, you know, how they end the games. And then uh, what happened is almost everyone, all the Detroit fans, almost all of them had gone home. They figured up, eight to nothing, you know, they've done it again. 
if you, you know, I know you have a lot of uh, football teams, soccer teams here in uh, England, and I'm sure there's some teams that do better than others, and maybe your team's one of those that doesn't do well, and you just say, oh, they've done it again, you know, I'm going to go to bed or, you know, whatever. And it was kind of that way with the Detroit Tigers. People thought, oh, they've done it again, we're going home. But then what happened is in one of the greatest comebacks in baseball history, the Detroit Tigers came up with nine runs at the very end of the game to win the game nine to eight. Now, the interesting thing is almost all the fans had gone home, just like John and Peter. They had gone home. They thought, ah, the Tigers have done it again. Goodbye. Just think how those baseball fans must have felt when they found out the Tigers had won. Now, there's a sense in which they must have been happy. Yay, the Tigers won. But I'm sure they also said to themselves, oh, no! If only I had stayed a little while longer, I would have seen one of the greatest comebacks in baseball history. Now, if they would have felt that way, just think how John and Peter must have felt. When they heard that Jesus had risen from the dead, they just didn't meet, miss one of the greatest comebacks in sports history. They missed the greatest comeback in history, the resurrection, hallelujah, of Jesus Christ. They missed it because they weren't persistent enough. We need to be persistent We need to have the attitude, if God has spoken to us something in his word, if we have received something in our prayer closet and we know it's from God and it's confirmed, especially by the pastor and by other believers, we need to go forward with it and we need to be persistent. Now sometimes persistence involves a battle in the mind. Sometimes God is saying to do one thing, And the enemy, or the flesh, is saying to do the other. Now, as I mentioned, now we live in Southern California. And we live about uh, 20 minutes from Disneyland. When I was younger, when I went to seminary to study for the ministry, I used to go street witnessing outside of Disneyland, uh, where they have a bus stop. And it's a beautiful place to street witness because it's like a mission field. Because you have people coming to Disneyland from all over the world. Many of the countries we have represented here, you could meet people at Disneyland. They'd come from Africa, from Japan, from Germany, all over the world. And I'd love to witness there because it was like a mission field without going overseas. And so one day I had shared the Lord with about 75 people at this bus stop. And all of a sudden, there was a fellow who went into an epileptic seizure. And it was very dangerous because not only was he shaking like this, but he took his hands and he grabbed the throat of another person and he started to choke him. And I thought, wow, Lord, what do I do? And I knew what the Lord wanted me to do. The Lord wanted me to go up to that individual and say, in the name of Jesus, seizure stop. Stop! But the enemy got in there. And I could just, you know, the battle of the mind. God said, this is what I want you to do. And Satan said, oh, you don't want to do that. You've just witnessed to 75 people. What if you say, in the name of Jesus, seize your stop, and nothing happens? They'll think Jesus is weak. You don't want to do that. 
So I had a decision. Was I going to listen to God or was I going to listen to the enemy? Well, I knew how I'd, who I had better listen to. And so I listened to the Lord and I went up to the individual and I said, in the name of Jesus, seizure, stop. And just like that, the seizure stopped. He was probably a man in his 20s. His mother was also there, who I would estimate her birthday, uh, her age rhymed with nifty. (laughs) And the next thing I knew, they were both kneeling down and the mother said, he has had these seizures ever since he was a little baby. I have never once seen one of his seizures end this quickly. Tell us what we need to do to receive Jesus. And not only did they give their hearts to Christ, but those 75 people, you know, instead of thinking Jesus is weak, they thought, wow, Jesus is strong. Next thing I knew, between 30 to 35 of them, I was leading them all in the sinner's prayer. But we need to be persistent. Now, like our dear brother, he loves South America, your pastor, and I do too. And I remember the first time I I ministered in Brazil was in 1983. And I was there for uh, close to a couple of months. And my interpreter arranged all the services for me. And uh, when I came to Brazil, he said, Bill, there's one church that I've set you up at. They're really on fire for God, but I want to warn you, they're very legalistic. And he said they're, again, very large. He said they're a church of uh, about uh, 13,000 people, which, you know, it's a lot of people. But he said they're very legalistic in that they do not believe a Christian should have a beard. Now, don't worry, brother. It, it works out okay in the end, okay? <laughs> but they believe that, that Christians should not have beards. And I've had this beard for a long time. I've had this beard since... Uh, 1976. And the reason why I have it is because it was a dramatic point in my Christian life. It was, it was like being born again, again. Now, you won't find that term in the Bible, okay, but that's how important it was to me. What had happened to me is that within two weeks, actually less than two weeks, I had lost the two people who were closest to me. And I was really going through it. I was beginning to grow a beard for the first time. And I cried out to God. I said, God, why? Why? And I cried out that way for three, to- three uh, days to the Lord. And on the third day, I, be- I prayed a prayer. And I'm sure you've had this happen. You ever pray a prayer that you know you couldn't have done it on your own strength? It had to be God. And that God gave you the words And I cried out to God, and I said, God, why, why? It's just you and me now. And suddenly, I realized that's exactly what God wanted. And I said, God, I now understand why you've allowed this to happen. And so, Lord, I pray that you would fill me with such a love so that anyone I come in contact with will never feel as empty as I do right now. And the best way I can describe it was like being born again again. I mean, it was a real turning point in my Christian life. God just filled me with a love, and I've never been the same since. And God just quickened to me. He said, as a symbol of what I have done in your life, I want you to keep your beard, and until I tell you, you're not to shave it off. So I'm not, I wouldn't say it's a vow, but it's close to a vow. 
So I've had it ever since. I mean, it's taken different shapes and so forth, but for all these years, uh, I've, I've had it. And so here was my interpreter saying, if you want to preach in this church, you've got to shave it off. And I thought, you know, what do I do? And they were very legalistic. They were so legalistic about a beard that if you came into church with a beard, uh, they would hand you a razor. They would not allow you in the congregation. They would say, there's the men's room, and you're to shave it off before you come into church. I mean, very, very legalistic. So my interpreter uh, explained to the pastor why I had the beard, and the pastor said, no way. I've pastored this church 30 years. There hasn't even been once a person with a beard has been in my church, let alone behind my pulpit. And then my interpreter said, well, won't you at least allow Bill to come and explain to you why he has the beard? And the pastor said, okay. So anyway, I, we went to uh, the pastor's parsonage, and one thing, and I'm sure uh, Pastor Peter will share the same thing with you, because well, it, it happens even in the church. You know, sometimes people get so big that they're not used to people saying no to them. Okay, and again, this was one of the largest churches in Brazil at that time, and I say that for a reason. You'll understand in a moment, because as I shared through my interpreter why I had the beard, the pastor said, well, let me pray about it. And he went in the prayer room and prayed. And then he came out. And then he said this to me. He said, you know what? I'm not used to people saying no to me, he said. But you have said no to me that you might say yes to God. And that is exactly the person I want behind my pulpit. So he said, originally he said, I wanted you to come for two whole days. And in Brazil, they go all day in church, basically. He said, I don't want you just for two days. Now I want you for nine. And in fact, ever since then, this is the church we go to over the years the most often. And, but sometimes persistence means standing on a conviction. Standing on what we know to be true. One last illustration I'll give about perseverance. Even though I'm from Southern California, I'm not a big fan of Hollywood. Uh, it's not a very godly atmosphere, but there are some Christians in Hollywood, and uh, one of them you may have seen, his name is Charlton Heston. He's been in the movie Moses, The Ten Commandments, Ben-Hur. These are some of the movies he's been in. And he's a Christian, and um, he gave a talk one time about... It was, the title of the talk was, What God Has Taught Me in My Acting Career. And he gave one illustration, I'll never forget it. The illustration was uh, in Ben-Hur, if you're familiar with Ben-Hur, either reading the book or seeing the movie, the climax is the chariot race. And Charlton Heston was to ride in the chariot and win. And the director was giving instructions about how to ride in a chariot and how to win, and Charlton Heston is going... I've never ridden a chariot in my life. You know, how does he expect me to actually win this race? And he was racing against a stuntman who did this sort of thing all the time. So he's kind of nervous, and the stuntman saw that Charlton Heston was nervous. And he went up to Charlton Heston, and according to Charlton Heston, he spoke the word of the Lord, if you will, not only for that situation, but for life as a whole. And he went up to Charlton Heston, and he said, uh, Mr. Heston, I can tell by the expression on your face that you're mighty nervous about this chariot race. You've probably never ridden in a chariot in your life and you're wondering how on earth can you possibly win this race. But Mr. Heston, let me just assure you, your job is just stay 
in the chariot. Be faithful to stay in the chariot. And if you are faithful to stay in the chariot, I'll make sure you win. And Charlton Heston took that as a word from the Lord, not only for that movie, but for life as a whole. Because isn't it true, sometimes God asks us to do something we don't feel equipped to do. We say, God, I can't do that. I don't have the talents. I don't have the abilities. But God says much the same thing to us. You stay in the chariot. Be faithful to stay in the chariot. And if we are faithful to stay in the chariot, to do that which God has asked us to do, he'll make sure we win. You believe that today? Amen. Praise the Lord. The last step. Amen. Let's give the Lord a clap. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. You're so gracious. The last step we need to take in following Mary Magdalene's example is when God gives us the resurrection blessing, we need to recognize it. Now, you notice what happened here? Jesus rose from the dead, and initially, Mary thought he was the gardener. She had a resurrection blessing. She didn't even realize it. And you know, as human beings, we're, we're kind of funny. We're kind of thick-headed. You know, you can knock on our head. And we're kind of thick-headed, aren't we? A lot of times, we pray for something, God answers we don't even recognize it. We don't even realize it. In the United States, most of the churches we go to that we preach in, we preach in every year. We, many churches we preach in every year for 15, 20, 25 years, so the people get to know us. And I remember there was this church that for many years we preached in. It was in Massachusetts. And we came to know this one fellow whose name was Rob. We didn't know him well, but we knew him a little bit. And uh, we just, he got married, and then he went through, I think, about the worst divorce I have ever seen a person, or at least a Christian, go through. His wife ran off with another guy. They had three children, and she refused him access to all three of his children. And Rob was very discouraged, very depressed, totally surprised him, and it was awful. She got into drugs, and it was, it was just a mess. And her new husband was a drug dealer. I mean, it was, it was a nightmare. And Rob was a godly, God-fearing man. And he was really grieved that he could not see his three children. And so he called us one day for prayer, and uh, he said, uh, you know, Bill and Haley, will you please pray for me? Because what he had done... I'll, I'll, use, I'll say it in pounds, uh, he spent, even though he was not wealthy, he wanted to see his children so badly that he spent about uh, 63,000 pounds in uh, legal fees, lawyers, to try to see his children. That's a lot of money to see your kids. And he's not wealthy. I mean, he spent almost all he had to try to gain access to his kids. One day, God is going to bless him for that. And then he called us and he said, please pray because tomorrow the judge is going to make his decision. The judge is going to tell me whether I can see my children or not. And so we said we'd pray. Well, the next day we called Rob to see what had happened. And uh, we said, you know, asked him, how did it go? And he said, oh, 
they increase the amount of alimony that I have to pay. She's taking me for almost all my income. He said, you wouldn't believe the amount of alimony they have increased my alimony to. And I said, well, you know, that's too bad and everything. I'm sorry, but that's not what you asked us to pray for. You asked us to pray, do you get, have access to your three kids? And he said, oh, yeah, 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 he gave access to my three kids, but oh, you wouldn't believe the alimony that I have to pay. And uh, so I said, well, praise God. The judge gave you access to your children? That's wonderful. And then all of a sudden he said, that's right. That's right. Hallelujah, he said. That's right. Praise God. But that's so typical of human beings. God had answered his prayer. He had given him the resurrection blessing, but he didn't even realize it. So when God does something like that, we need to praise him. We need to recognize that blessing. Another time, we preached at another church, near, somewhat near Chicago. Not the same as the one before, but another one. And the pastor's daughter had just been through a um, car accident. She had been hit by a huge truck. Huge. Her car, and she had just learned to drive. She had just gotten her license three days before. And she had gotten in an accident. Her car was just smashed like sardine can. And uh, she only had a bump, though, on her head. That's all. Otherwise, she was fine. And we went to preach at the church, and I thought the, I thought the pastor was going to be raptured. I mean, he was just going, hallelujah, praise God. And you know, a lot of people wouldn't have responded that way. A lot of people would have thought, oh, God, why didn't you protect my daughter? Why, didn't, why was she in the accident, this and that? But no, this pastor knew that he had his resurrection blessing and he was going to glorify God for it. Hallelujah. So when God gives us the blessing, we need to recognize it and we need to praise him for it. And this is what I have sensed as I've been praying for King's Church here in Cambridge. I really sense, first of all, I sense this is God's man. And that God has spoken to him. And I really believe that as much as God has used this church already, we've only begun to see what God is going to do. Amen. I believe the, this church is just right at the threshold, right there, right about to enter into something more glorious than ever before. That God wants to give us a resurrection blessing to reach more people, to see more people touched, to be more people healed, to see more people saved than ever before. And we must never, ever limit God in believing what he wants to do through King's Church. Because I believe he's going to do something magnificent. I believe it's true for us as a church. I believe it's true for us as individuals. And I ask you, are you ready to receive it?